1: Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track-by-track track through the underbelly of music history using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records.
2: I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And congratulations, you found the finest source of unauthorized music on the internet. But before we get into all that, we start, as always, with a little bit of trivia. Trivia.
1: Right, I'm going first today with our non-audio round. What I'm going to do is I'm going to name two albums by a single artist. What I want you to do is name the artist and tell me which album came first. Okay, I think okay. I've got that. Number one, the two albums are "High, Low, and In Between" and "Flying Shoes."
2: That's Towns Van Zant. Yes, and I think "Flying Shoes" was earlier.
1: "Flying Shoes" came out in 1978. Hilo Low and In Between came out in 1972. Ooh, okay. Yeah. The next one. The first album is called 40. The second album is called Poet, Fool, or Bum. That is
2: Lee Hazelwood, and 40 definitely came out first.
1: It did. 1969 for 40, 1973 for Poet, Fool, or Bum. The next one, this should be a pretty easy one. The first album is called The Life of the World to Come, and the other one is called Transcendental Youth.
2: It's uh, The Mountain Goats.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That's two albums I don't know much about.
1: I think that's why tra- I picked them. Transcendental Youth came out earlier. And that's what I was hoping you would say. You're wrong. Transcendental <sighs> Youth is 2012. The Life of the World to Come is 2009.
2: I kind of trailed off on them after, like, Tallahassee.
1: <laughs> that's, that's why I picked things after that. Here's another example of that. The first album is Up, and the other album is Reveal. Uh, that's REM, mm-hmm. and
2: Up was first. Up was
1: 1998. Reveal was 2001.
2: I think I saw them on the Up tour.
1: So, oh wow! Yeah. Well, probably, um, probably like at a at a bar by that point. <laughs>
2: No, it was Red Rocks. <laughs> but uh, the funny, funny thing about that show is Mercury Rev opened for them, and they were touring on the Deserter song, and they just blew R.E.M. out of the water. Mercury Rev was so good, and R.E.M. came on, and it was just like it was. It was kind of sad, actually.
1: That's not in any way that we don't like R.E.M. No, I always. love R.E.M. But like yeah, me too.
2: I've seen yeah, them. A, I've seen them maybe twice. I think I maybe saw them on the Monster two or two, and they're much better. But like Mercury Rev was so good.
1: That Deserter Songs was a great, great album. There was a good trio, not that this will be edited out, but I remember there was a trio of albums that all kind of reminded me of each other, and it was the um, Flaming Lips Yoshimi, Luna, Days of Our Nights, and Mercury Rev Deserter Songs. All They all sort of had a very similar feel to them. Yeah. I liked all of them a lot. Good stuff. Still, yep. Yeah. Number five. This is our music, and today.
2: That's Galaxy 500. Mm-hmm. I think today is first. It is.
1: 1988 for today. This Is Our Music was their last album, 1990. Two more here. Number six, A Thousand Leaves is album one, and Murray Street is album two.
2: Sonic Youth. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say Murray Street.
1: Murray Street is 2002. A Thousand Leaves was 1998. Ah, Jeez. So 4 years stretch, you probably missed five albums in between. (laughs) (laughs) Mostly instrumentals. Released in the back of porno shops. (laughs) (laughs) That's what they're good at. (laughs) Number seven. One Beat is one album, and The Woods is the other album.
2: Uh, that's Sleater, Kinney. I should know this. I think One Beat was first.
1: It was, 2002. For One Beat, The Woods was 2005. Good job.
2: Both those albums were played a lot in my home, back when they came out. Yep. All right, at least got all the artists, I think.
1: Yeah, you did. I think you only missed one of the questions.
2: All right, it is time for my audio track, or uh, audio quiz. A pretty straightforward one. I want you to give me the name of the artist, the name of the song if you can, and there is a theme that holds them all together. All right, let me go ahead and play them for you. Track one. Track two.
3: Let me take you to the movie. Can I take you to
4: the show?
2: Track three.
4: Stone is stubborn now. Then again, the symbolic war. Pray the poor. Either. Or.
2: Track four. Track five,
3: no of
2: place. You track six.
0: things we used to do and
2: again there is a theme that holds them all together uh give me the name of the artist and the song and the theme if you can six songs and we will play them again at the end and uh let you and our audience uh guess you have any ideas
1: i have a few guesses i i think i know all the artists i feel pretty good about guessing the theme fantastic we'll find out later I think it's now on to our turntable talk.
5: Everybody is talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying.
1: Only the echoes of my mind. On the morning of July 29, 1966, a 1964 Triumph T100 motorcycle crashed on Stribal Road just outside Woodstock, New York. The rider of the motorcycle was 25-year-old Bob Dylan. The result of the accident was the creation of bootleg records as we know them. Bob Dylan removed himself from society and holed up in Woodstock. Along the way, the band joined him in a nearby house, painted pink. Bob Dylan and the band recorded over a 100 songs in that pink house, but had no intention of releasing them. The songs were being recorded and acetates and tapes were delivered to other artists with the idea that these would be for publishing only. Songs from this period were recorded by the Byrds, Julie Driscoll, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and Manfred Mann, but fans were unable to hear Dylan singing any of these. In 1968, a few radio stations in California had acquired some some of the songs and began playing them on the air. The quality was terrible. The songs were clearly not meant for airplay, but at least it was Dylan singing and they were new songs. People were clamoring to hear more of these songs. Rolling Stone even wrote an article pleading to Dylan to release the songs. In 1969, two industrious friends, Dub Taylor and Ken Douglas, got a hold of some of these tapes, and had about a hundred of them pressed and released as a double record called Great White Wonder. The name of the album was given due to its white nondescript cover, which became the norm for bootlegs for a little while. Sides one and three of that album were from a 1961 recording that took place in an apartment in Minneapolis. Most of side two was were studio outtakes, But the end of that side and all of side four contained seven of the lusted after basement tape songs. In clandestine operations, they found stores who would sell these. They sold so quickly that Ken and Dub, who quickly created the trademark of quality record label, pressed 300 more. And then 300 more again when those sold out. Their bootlegging careers had begun in earnest. With money coming in, Dub was able to spend his share of the latest editing and recording equipment. He was one of the first homeowners of an equalizer, which helped make his recording better than others, and others were popping up everywhere in California. Up until the release of Great White Wonder, there had been a history of bootleg recordings going all the way back to Edison inventing the phonograph. Edison, in fact, gave a phonograph to a friend who wanted to record classical concerts. These recorders had some issues, however. First, they sounded terrible. Second, they were immense and hard to transport. Third, they were only able to record for about one to two minutes. Classical concerts and movie soundtracks were the biggest areas of the bootleg business prior to 1969. There had been other rock bootlegs before then, but very few, and hardly any of those, were recorded for consumers. They were recorded for home use, which is what the bulk of bootlegs remains even today. Most people simply want copies of shows they went to. As far as definitions go, there are three things to know about bootlegs. There are bootlegs, there are pirates and there are counterfeits. Bootlegs are unauthorized recordings, live and unreleased. Pirated copies are published and released studio recordings sold as copies. Counterfeits are similar but worse copies of real recordings sold as the real recordings. So those are the three distinctions. Once Dub and Ken released Great White Wonder, radio stations began playing the complete album over the air. From this, people recorded the broadcasts and began pressing their own vinyl copies to sell. Dub and Ken saw the competition start up and started recording more shows. Dub purchased a small silver wand-shaped microphone, painted it black, and followed the Rolling Stones on their California tour. He went to five of their shows and recorded them all. From these recordings, he edited what is still arguably the best live album by any band, as far as quality goes, and called it, Liver Than You'll Ever Be. This was a seminal bootleg recording and was a huge seller for them. Even Mick Jagger and Keith Richards got copies. It also forced their record label to release Get Your Yaya's Out, which wouldn't have happened if not for Dub and Ken. Get Your Yaya's Out was a disgrace compared to Liver. The bootleg was so good that Rolling Stone reviewed it and lambasted the studio's attempt. TMQ, trademark of quality, upped their game even more as not only more competition came into the scene, but stiffer competition. Footleggers hadn't started adding much flair to their releases up to that point, for the most part. Dub decided that their releases would now be on virgin-colored vinyl, and would feature cover art. They also tried to make sure that all of their releases would be from original tapes to cut down on degraded sound found in most bootlegs. They also started producing more copies of their record, which was not very easy to do. There were quite a few pressing plants at the time, which was discussed some during our private pressing episode, so they were able to use some of those but there were also times when they found ways to use bigger studio pressing plants, when people turned a blind eye to what was being pressed. In fact, Liver was pressed in the same plant at the same time as Let It Bleed. The process of pressing and distribution became something out of Goodfellas, but with the Big Lebowski in place of Henry Hill. They would meet and sell records to mob-affiliated goons in the middle of the night at undisclosed locations with fake names to sell boxes of records. The goons would then distribute them around the country. The level of paranoia was high, and many of the people assisting Dub and Ken bowed out quickly for fear of harm. These were hippies, for the most part, and not incredibly adept at dealing with heavyweights. Getting records pressed wasn't quite as scary. In those times, according to Ken, everyone was a crook and would look the other way for some extra cash. As Dub and Ken's bootleg empire grew, other notable bootleggers started making their own impressions in the market. One of these guys went by the name of Rubber Dubber, which was also his label's name. He found great original tapes and recorded his own concerts. He didn't bring recorders into concerts, but would instead bring just the microphones, which transmitted out to a recorder in a truck parked a few blocks away. Rubber Dubber was what began creating the first fissures in in Dub and Ken's business relationship. Ken had no problem at all with anyone else releasing their own bootlegs. He recognized that they had no contracts with Dylan and the Stones, and by then the Beatles and Zeppelin. Dub was pissed. That anyone would horn in on their stars. He started looking for ways to knock others out of the trade. When Rubber Dubber put out an amazing concert by Led Zeppelin, Dub took that recording, copied it, edited it with his equalizer, and released it as their own. Rubber Dubber didn't know Dub, but he knew Ken. They'd traded a few bootlegs in the past and seemed to get along just fine. Rubber Dubber, upon hearing that copy, sent a couple of really big guys over to Ken's to threaten him, and it took a lot of talking to convince those guys that their recording was different. Ken never saw Rubber Dubber again. While Dub and Ken kept themselves as unknown as possible to help reduce the chances of getting caught, Rubber Dubber took ads out in Rolling Stones, asking for them to review his releases. This was one of the big acts that led the record labels to contacting the FBI to try to stop bootleggers. The record companies argued that bootlegging was stealing money from the artists. Let it be known, and we'll touch on this later, there has never been any legitimate evidence that bootlegs of live shows have ever been detrimental or costly in any way to artists or labels. Record labels started flooding the market with gross exaggerations of losses when in fact, to that point, they had no idea how much bootleg sellers were making at all. And it really wasn't all that much. More importantly, they didn't have the slightest idea how to catch people behind bootlegging. They insisted that the entire industry was a ring being commanded by a single entity and that they wanted that person caught. They brought the FBI in to try to stop the the bootlegging. The FBI was even more inept. They knew nothing of the bootlegging operation and didn't do much to teach themselves anything. According to the bigger bootleggers of that time, there were only four or five plants that could have handled what they were, what they needed due to the quantity that they were then pressing and the speed with which they wanted it. They wanted live albums out to the fans within weeks and ahead of the competition. What this meant was that all the FBI needed to do was stake out those few plants and catch the bootleggers as they, as they picked up their records. The FBI raided plants to attempt this but their raids took place between the hours of 8 and 5 and bootleggers were picking up their records between 5 and 6 a.m. usually. In addition to that, owners of plants would give heads-up warnings to bootleggers that they liked if they suspected anything was up. One other trick that baffled the FBI was bootleggers putting stickers on the back of their records that said Made in Holland. The FBI then assumed these records were being pressed in Holland. As trademark of quality got bigger, Dub and Ken started also releasing material on other fake labels that they'd created, which helped confuse authorities even more. Rubber Dubber and others did the same thing. The other big bootleggers at this point included the likes of Vinyl Vicky and John Wizardo, who even worked together once once in a while, and another guy named Michael O, who had incredible sources. They all had great tapes and the know-how to get good sounding records made and pressed quickly. This was now the early 70s, and Dub and Ken finally split up as tensions mounted between what they were doing and where they were headed. Unfortunately for Ken, Dub had most of the tapes, but Ken was much nicer to people at the pressing plants, so he got copies of everything Dub pressed. Ken's new primary label was called Amazing Cornyphone Record Label. He had several other labels, as everyone did, most notably Highway Hi-Fi Records. Ken found a copy of what is now considered another one of the most incredibly important bootlegs, Bob Dylan's Royal Albert Hall concert. It was the Judas concert. The copy Ken had wasn't amazing, but no one else had released it at all, so he wanted to get it out as quickly as possible. He had a wife and kids, and they were running short on money. Even if there were a few issues with the recording, he went ahead with it anyway. He took it in to get it pressed, and when he came back to pick it up, he saw an unfamiliar Dylan recording also at the plant. He took a copy of that one home, only to find it was also Royal Albert Hall, and it was an immaculate copy. That copy was put out by Michael Oh mentioned earlier. He'd come onto the scene with a few really big albums. In addition to Royal Albert Hall, he was the first to put out the Get Back sessions, as they were originally recorded before Phil Spector had his way with them. He was also the first one to release a better-sounding copy of The Basement Tapes from Better Tapes and with more songs. To get Royal Albert Hall, Michael O. had been in contact with a British guy named Allen, who had master tapes of a bunch of as-yet unreleased material from Dylan and the Beatles and others, but he was apprehensive about selling those for wide release. Michael got him to come over to his house to play them for him, so he could hear a few. Before British Allen arrived, Michael spent some time drilling holes in his floor directly below his stereo and running wires down to a recorder in the basement. He had Allen play the records, and then play them again, and then play them a third time. Each one was played three times. From there, after the recordings, he produced and sold those boots, much to the chagrin of British Allen. This propelled Michael O. to become one of the big bootleggers around, and one whose releases would be quickly consumed by the public. As the RIAA convinced the government to pass stricter laws, one of which was passed in '73, some of the bootleggers started leaving the business. Rubber Dubber, in fact, walked away in 1972, never to return again, which was also rare. Most of the people who got out came back in again. As the 70s chugged along, Dub and Ken were still producing the most bootlegs, though from 74 to 76, no one was anywhere close to what Ken's output was. Radio stations were playing live concerts by then, in full, so bootleggers had a much easier time getting quality recordings. This airplay and the bootlegging of them helped get names like Bruce Springsteen and Patti Smith out to more more people, focusing on how gripping their live shows were. These two benefited greatly from bootleg records, and both at the time had no issues at all with bootleggers. Before Springsteen came along, the big four bootleg stars were Dylan, The Beatles, The Stones, and Zeppelin. Dylan, The Stones, and Zeppelin make a lot of sense, but The Beatles was kind of strange. Even today, they're probably the most in demand of bands bootlegged. They didn't tour much and weren't known for being a very good live band at all, especially above above all the teenage caterwauling. The studio outtakes were what everybody wanted, and those seemed to have been pretty much drained by the 90s. Springsteen's popularity impressed upon bootleggers that other concerts and other bands needed to be recorded and sold. This perfectly coincided with punk rock's entry into the world. Punk rock was perfect for bootlegging. Studio albums often paled in comparison to live shows by the likes of The Sex Pistols, The Clash, and television. Even with stricter copyright laws and the RIAA and the FBI trying harder and harder to find an antidote for the bootlegging disease, the industry thrived thanks to punk, new wave, and the big five rock stars. But the former big-time bootleggers had mostly left the business by then. Dub had left. Ken had left. Come back. Left again. Wizardo continued on and remained important into the 90s off and on. Beyond that, it was a new cast. In the late 70s and early 80s, the record company saw what they deemed an even worse problem, home taping. The advent of the Walkman and longer playing, better sounding cassettes made bootlegging much easier for more people. Most of the recordings made with Walkman and their counterparts didn't sound very good, but these were mostly being recorded for personal use. The record labels disagreed, again without any actual statistics. This is when they began the home-taping-is-killing-music-attack, claiming millions of dollars lost to cassette recordings of shows and albums. As far as bootleg cassettes went, what most people would do is trade tapes. This was a huge practice and one I took part a bit in a bit myself. People would find other people who had tapes of shows and they would trade them, generally with the caveat that the tapes were not ever to be sold. The record industry lobbied com- Congress to impose a tape levy, to make up for the made-up losses that were astronomically fictitious. Vinyl bootlegs were still primarily what was being sold, and it was still doing well despite the advent of cassettes. In the 80s, one final huge bootleg came out. A bootlegger named Tim Smith got one of the very few copies of Prince's Black Album before it was recalled. This may be the biggest selling bootleg of all time, and also showed everyone that bootlegs don't have to be by white artists only. Unfortunately for vinyl bootleggers, the CD was invented. This medium was responsible not only for being nearly the end of all vinyl, but also an even bigger boom for bootlegging and one that ended up worldwide. During the 90s, bootlegging slowed down in the U.S. because of even stricter copyright laws. It still existed and was doing better than vinyl, but it was hard to find CD pressing plants willing to manufacture CDs. Consumers, however, wanted them. The record industry pricing on CDs was ludicrous. Production cost for CDs was less than vinyl, but the prices were more than double. That's when pirated albums made the big leap forward. The UK and Europe in general took over the heavy lifting of bootlegs due to lax copyright laws. In some European countries, copyright laws restricted the making of releases of published works for 10 to 20 years, which meant the 60s were now fair game. In some of those same countries and even more, live recordings weren't protected at all. The UK cracked down pretty quickly, but Germany and Italy Italy were producing more and more bootlegs. As the European community tightened and began sharing agreements, bootleg manufacturing made its way to the Pacific Rim. Japanese bootleg consumers had a hard time getting bootlegs from around the world, but now they were ahead of the game with CD technology and had a better understanding of the potential for CD bootlegs than anyone else. To get good tapes to Japan, bootleggers would take out ads in Goldwax, asking for tapes, In exchange, the sender would receive 50 free copies of the final product. Because of the anti-Japanese sentiment, few bootleggers did this. The ones that did were rewarded though. Japan took original tapes and turned them into the finest bootlegs yet heard anywhere. One of the first was the release of the Beach Boys Smile Sessions in 1989. This had been a very popular bootleg through the years, but this single release had no equal. The Japanese quickly took control of the market manufacturing of bootleg CDs moved around a lot. They moved from Korea to Taiwan to Eastern European countries once the Iron Curtain fell. As laws became stricter in any country, it was easier. Un- it was e- always easy enough to find a country with manufacturers in third-world countries willing to make some money. One of the issues with CDs that was also relevant to vinyl and cassettes was degradation and copying. CDs were copied from other CDs, bootlegs of bootlegs, and pirates of pirates. The industry was consuming itself. Bootlegging peaked finally as a whole from 1990 to 1992. From there, as we all know, the internet and better, smaller recording equipment changed the bootlegging landscape for good. Vinyl and CD bootlegs are still being produced worldwide, but you can now just download about any show you've ever heard of without paying a cent, and the quality can be as good or better than any studio recording. As far as bootlegs robbing artists, there is no legitimate financial argument for this. There are, though, artistic ones. Artists often demand such levels of perfection that releases of studio outtakes and live performances destroys all the effort that they put into creating an album, which is often years of work. They like to control what's allowed to be heard. Studio time also costs money, so should outtakes be fair game at all? That said, why should only those people who have record label connections get to hear important recordings that might never be officially released? Works that have been edited by studios after recordings are complete have a worse argument. When a record company changes an album to boost potential sales, a bootleg of the original album is probably not such a terrible thing. It's not taking money from anyone, as most bootleg collectors buy all copies of the real album anyway, and it's more representative of what the fans think the artist wanted to be released. There are also bands who have never released live albums at all, and those concerts should have been documented. Pink Floyd, for example, doesn't officially acknowledge that they have any live albums out, so their bootlegs are incredible and important documents. Same goes for television, a band known for their live shows that very few fans ever had the chance to see. Artists themselves have different opinions of bootlegging. Some artists even change their own opinion on it, usually loving bootleggers when they're making a name for themselves and hating them once they're rich. Bruce Springsteen is the perfect example of this. John Lennon, Peter Buck, Mick Jagger, and Eddie Vedder Are well-known collectors of bootleg records, especially their own. Ringo Starr and Paul McCartney are opposed. Go figure. Surprisingly, the Grateful Dead don't actually like bootleggers. It's one of the reasons they promote only free trade of their recordings. They hate bootleggers making money from their work on stage. Whether they like them or not, bootlegging is important to the history of music. It forced labels into making official releases of a lot of live albums that might never have seen the light of day. It also forced them to add bonus tracks of unreleased material to reissue albums. Bootlegging created Bob Dylan's Bootleg series, which is one of my favorite things ever. Bob Dylan is known for being a horrible self-editor, and some of the best things he ever recorded are only on those releases. Bootlegging is still around, still easy to find because of the internet, and I think it'll just always be around. It'll always just keep up with the the technology. People want to hear shows that they've been to, and they want to hear unreleased material by their favorite artists. The research that I did for this was mostly from a book by Clinton Halen, a, another huge Bob Dylan fan, called Bootleg, The Secret History of the Other Recording Interst- Industry, and it was published in 1994.
2: Those are some kind of insane stories, but, you know, I think about some of the best live stuff I have. I think like that Velvet Underground, the 1969... I mean, it's it's entirely different versions of their songs, you know, beautiful versions, versions that, you know, I prefer to the original a lot of ways. And like it is just kind of important to have, like you said, have those documents. And it's great when they get released commercially, but people get obsessed and people need to find this stuff. Yeah. So those guys ever like kind of come out as the bootleggers or is it all pretty? They kind of just gone to the
1: wind. The Ken guy, he's is now, he's not in America. He and his wife live on a boat now that their kids are grown, and the boat is called Great White Wonder. And he, he's one of the few that has actually released his name, his own name. From what I've read by him, he seems to throw around real people's names uh, fairly often, though I don't think they would. <laughs> so I don't know if anybody really appreciates that.
2: It's funny how often we've done these and the mafia is involved. Like this seems like it's a they're just a huge part of the music industry. It's kind of weird.
1: There's another story in there where Ken thinks it would be a good idea to copy soul 45s, just kind of make copies of them and take them to black record stores in L.A. and sell them. That was a really bad idea because those uh, those that was already being done by the Black Mafia at the time. And Ken was visited by some by some men. <laughs> in his parents' house, <laughs> and uh, they never made another one of those. <laughs> when they came into the house, he said, before they got there, they knew that the meeting was going to happen, and they had holes put into the walls just large enough for a gun to go through. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> They're so worried. They didn't mess around with that kind of stuff again. There are a few different stories like that. I guess it got pretty scary once in a while.
2: What Do you have any cool bootleg records, some of your favorites?
1: My favorite one is Bob Dylan's Ten of Swords, which is one of another one of the most famous bootlegs. There aren't very many copies of it. It's a 10 LP set. Most of it has now been put onto some of the bootleg series, but uh-huh. it's, it's one of my prized possessions.
2: I've got a um a couple weird punk ones I think I got a hooskerdoo one and a, and a sex pistol one that I won in a contest or something weird like that so I don't listen to them very often but every once in a while I put them on they they're fun you know it's it gives you more of a slice of what that show might have been like especially that hooskerdoo because it's like non-stop noise like there was not a break it was just noise. you know real early hoosker Du, you know just pure noise pretty
1: good I also one one other thing that I was reading was Frank Zappa hated bootleggers so much that what he did was he took bootlegs of his concerts, just copied them, and put out an eight CD box set of those for less than the bootleg bootleggers were selling them for, just to try to get them so take money out of their pockets.
2: That's crazy. <laughs> I mean, I I get that. I I think like you know. Like the Grateful Dead, you know, I think they make bootlegging possible. But I understand that, like, you know, it's one thing if you're just trying to get your your music out there. It's another thing if people are making bunches of money on what you do. So I, I, I do see it both ways. But oh, either totally. way, it's kind of a fascinating history because it is very what was the name of the book? The other recording industry. That's I mean, mm-hmm. it's just that's perfect perfect name for what it is. I think it's time to play some songs. <laughs> I think I'm going to start off with the first song, uh this uh, episode. It's not a bootleg song, but it's a it's a pretty good one. This one is called City Sidewalks by Moffat and Davies.
5: Thousand miles of city sidewalks won't help you to ease your mind. When the best years of your life are over and it's all behind you, still you're walking towards a dream that somehow seems outrageous. It's then you realize You've been dreaming all your life Mm -hmm. Drinking whiskey from the bottle Won't help to erase the pain everything that you've been for turns out to be against you still you're drinking from the bottle wishing it was empty it's then you realize you've been drinking all your life rows of static numbers won't buy you the promised land When you're told that it's just been sold to your brother who's an honest man Still your faith is in your bank book Though you're facing failure It's then you realize You've been failing
2: all your life. All right, again, that was City Sidewalks by Moffat and Davies. They were kind of just a one-off, weird, psychedelic country folk band. They had one album that got released on Columbia Records in 1969 called The Rise and Fall of Honesty. There's not a ton of information about there. They apparently just had this one record. It seems like they got sort of big because they opened for Glenn Yarbrough in the late 60s. So that was kind of like when you're on the internet like researching, people say, yeah, I saw them open for Glenn Yarbrough. They're great. Um, but this this record's really good, and this song in particular is kind of a great uh, haunting-type song. The, their harmony is very weird to me. It's kind of warbling, and they don't sound traditionally like what you would think of as a duet that it's kind of discordant, but but still very pretty. Um, it's been reissued on CD but never on vinyl. Uh, but originals are not you know gonna set you back too much. they're They're pretty reasonable. you know, it's Columbia Records, so it wasn't like this small label. But if you like the song, the whole album's worth uh, checking out. it's it's uh, like I said, it's kind of some great psychedelic folk that you just seems like people can't copy that sound like it was in the late 60s. So that's my first song.
1: Good one. I love that song, and that, that album is really good. My first song today is by a guy named Cast King, and the song is called Sawmill Man.
6: I was raised in the backwoods at Star Paper Shack. Carried my life to the mill in an old flat sack, as Drawboy said. Work hard as you can The work don't kill you You'll be a soul, little man There was fourteen kids When we were at home Hard as a rock Tough as a bone Born one morning With an axe in my hand Look at him, Paul, he'll be a sawmill man The mill is down, the sawyer is sick Old crew passed out, found the creek I got a ten load of crawl ties, I load them all by hand I owe everybody I'm a sawmill man To the bank, the banker was sore. If you need money, I don't have any more. There's two things I can't understand: a two-time and woman and a soul new man. There's many a woman that needs a good man. To keep her warm and hold her hand The bridge is washed out at the foot of the hill The devil don't get me
1: in the sawmill world. All right, that was Cast King with Sawmill Man. Uh, that is the title song from his 2005 release on Locust Music, and it was also reissued on Mississippi Records in 2013. Uh, that first The first issue of it is kind of hard to get now. When cast king recorded this album sawmill man he was 79 years old he was found by a field recording guy who had been traveling around i think it was in alabama or and people kept telling him to go find this cast king guy so he went down there and he recorded him and they recorded this album in his basically his cabin on four track recordings and then released it king was working on a new a second album. Um, but he died two years after after making this one, and the recordings weren't didn't end up getting made. Um, he also had a band in 50s, and they recorded seven tracks on Sun Records. My next song is a cover of a Bob Dylan song called Tonight I'll Be Staying Here with You, and it is by everyone's favorite Cher.
4: Get out the window throw my suitcase out there too throw my troubles out the door I don't need them anymore cause tonight I'll be staying here with you I should have left this morning, but it was more than I could do. For your love comes on so strong, and I've waited all day long for the night when I'll be staying. Is it really any wonder The love that a stranger might receive He cast a spell and I went under And it's so difficult to leave I can hear that whistle blow That station master too If there's a poor girl on the street I said let her have my seat Cause tonight I'll be Staying here with you Throw my ticket out the window Throw my suitcase out there too Throw my troubles out the door I don't need them anymore Cause now Right,
1: that was again, that was share with tonight I'll be staying here with here with you, the Bob Dylan song. This is from her 1969 album called 3614 Jackson Highway, which was her sixth solo album. As many uh, as many of you may know by the title of the album that that is the address of the Muscle Shoals Studio where the album was recorded in Sheffield, Alabama. The album was a complete failure. It got up to like number 160 on the charts. Having said that, it is not only the best album she ever made, it's the only decent album she ever made.
2: I mean, she used the Muscle Shoals band, right? They're like a crack band. I mean, yeah, you know, they really yeah. good sound.
1: And it's funny, on that album, obviously, Jerry Wexler produced it. He's, he did almost all the Muscle Shoals, Shoals stuff, but on the cover, there's a picture of everybody who contributed to the album, and Sonny Bono was on there, and on the back, he's listed as a producer. He didn't do anything. He wasn't really a... I, th- I think he was kind of pushed out of the whole, whole mix by that point, because they were trying to... Get her career
2: going again. I, I love that record. It's it's a record where you think you, you should hate it and, and all evidence points to you should hate it, a cover record by Cher, where she was just clearly going for some kind of shtick of muscle shoals. But it is so good. Like there's several several great covers. Um, she does a cover of uh, what's the Buffalo Springfield song we just for listened what to recently? For what it's worth.
1: Walking on Gilded Splinters.
2: Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's good stuff. Alright, and my last song is a uh, slice of garage rock heaven called I'm a No Count by a band called Ty Wagner and the Scotchman.
7: Boss gone seven years ago Four fathers left their homes a roam. Light bright is awfully dim I'm a no-cow Cut it for years. That's the way it's gotta be I was so broken up I couldn't talk
2: Okay, that was uh, Ty Wagner and his Scotchman with a song called I'm a No Count. And they were an L.A. garage band, and they put out a 45 on Chattahoochee Records in 1965. And uh, it's just great Fun, angsty garage song where it's got that gunshot drum beat at the beginning and then a distorted tremolo bar and you know lyrics like I don't need your Cadillac baby just you know it's a, <laughs> you don't have to overthink it um, it's a pretty well-known and well-covered garage song um, I've got it on a compilation called Teenage Shutdown I'm a No Count it was the fourth volume in that series uh, that's put out by Tim Warren of Crypt Records for me it's one of the standout songs the liner notes uh, kind of they caught up with ty wagner in the liner notes and they asked him about it and he he just seems kind of pissed about the whole thing he said it never got promoted the way it should have uh, so um yeah just a kind of a lost garage rock song a fun one that i think you should listen to
1: i think i'm ready for your trivia
2: all right so i'm gonna go ahead and play it one more time for people playing along at home Again, I need the artist, the song, and then at the end, the theme. Here we go. Track one. Track
3: two.
2: Three
4: is more stubborn now than an endless symbolic poor brave bore
3: eat the
2: ock four No wind is scream around
5: the trees for love psycho candy the world
2: is spread strange disease for love. Track five Track six.
0: Almost blue. Almost doing things we used to do.
2: All right, Joe. Let's see if you can uh, solve my, my puzzle.
1: I think track one, track one is Captain Beefart, and I think the song is called Safe as Milk.
2: It is Captain Beefheart, and the song is Safe as Milk. Very good.
1: Number two is Led Zeppelin. Who?
2: Yes, you're right. I'm sorry. Led
1: Zeppelin, that (laughs) that fella. And I think the title of the song is Houses of the Holy.
2: Very good. That bodes well for you.
1: (laughs) The track three is Elliot Smith with a song called Either Or. That's right. Track four, Jesus and Mary Chain with Psycho Candy. Yes. Track five is PJ Harvey with Dry.
2: You are correct.
1: And track six is Elvis Costello with Almost Blue.
2: Alright, you've got all the songs, so what is the theme? Okay,
1: these were all songs that were intended to be title track songs for albums, but were all left off the album of the same title.
2: That is exactly right. I don't know if they were intended to be title tracks, but whatever happened, these are names of albums by the artists that were not on the actual album. So, Safe as Milk ended up on Strictly Personal, Houses of the Holy ended up on Physical Graffiti, uh, either or ended up on New Moon, which was I think was released posthumously. Psycho Candy was a single, not on the Psycho Candy album. Dry was on Rid of Me, and not the album Dry by PJ Harvey. And Almost Blue, even though it was would have fit really well on the album, Almost Blue was actually on the album Imperial Bedroom by Elvis Costello. Joe, you are perfect. But uh, you did a good job of using... Um, Using the uh, theme to come back and fill in some of the stuff you didn't know. You know, I tried not to make the clips too hard. I tried to give little hints there and there. Maybe even putting the name of the song in, which I don't usually do, but I think you might have needed it this time. Maybe I was wrong. I'll go back it's to very, my... very, very but... kind of you. Yeah, my, you're going to get a terrible you knew it next was my time. birthday. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I hope you enjoyed the show, and... Um, as always we want you to go out and support uh your record stores and buy some records treat yourself uh support the people who make music and sell music and do all the things that you know make record collecting fun you know last last episode we talked a lot about record store day hopefully you got a chance to find some good stuff and and that you're supporting your record store but uh we really appreciate you listening. I think Joe's going to tell you about social media now.
1: Yeah, follow us on Facebook. Uh, we have a website. We have a Twitter feed. It's a Highway High Five podcast in some way. You can also email us, highway high five Podcast at gmail.com. What we would really love is if you went into iTunes and gave us a nice review and some stars, five of them if, if you can. Uh, that would really help because that'll mean that means more people can hear the show, and and that's kind of what we want, and we hope that's what you want too.
2: Yeah, and uh, I will say, it seems like we've been getting more downloads. We get some interaction on our Facebook and Twitter, and so if you've reached out or or shared the podcast, we just want to say thanks. We we love doing it, but we want you know people to hear it. All right, well, we will see you all next time. A-M-
0: What would you do to achieve the American dream—the big house, the happy family, the money? What's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing?
7: What's the problem? What's the
3: problem?
0: <laughs> would you lie? Would you cheat?
3: Would I shop? Would I shop?
0: Would you kill?
3: Yes. My mom and dad. My mom and
0: my From Airship.